Hello and welcome to another episode of the Voices in Japanese Studies podcast. I'm Anna Fittinghoff. And I'm Matt Lowton. In today's episode, we are excited to bring you an interview with Dr. Mark Pendleton, Senior Lecturer in Japanese Studies at the University of Sheffield. Dr. Pendleton re uh, received his BA from Griffith University in Australia and his PhD from the University of Melbourne. During his PhD, he was a Max Research Scholar at uh, Tokyo University of Foreign Studies and a visiting fellow at New York University. Before obtaining his PhD, Dr. Pendleton worked in various roles, including working for a number of non-governmental organizations in Australia. Following the completion of his uh, PhD, Dr. Pendleton joined the School of East Asian Studies at the University of Sheffield as a lecturer in Japanese studies. During the interview, we talked to Dr. Pendleton about his academic journey, as well as his interests and activities outside of Japanese studies. We discussed his academic training, which saw him studying in Australia, Japan, and the United States, and chat about his experience of balancing his political activism with his academic career. We are joined today by Dr. Mark Pendleton, Senior Lecturer in Japanese Studies at the University of Sheffield. Dr. Pendleton received his BA from Griffith University in Australia before completing a PhD in History at the University of Melbourne. Dr. Pendleton has worked in the School of East Asian Studies at Sheffield since 2012. His research focuses on 20th century Japanese history, and Dr. Pendleton has written on topics such as the history of gender and sexuality, transnational social movement histories, and the relationship between memory and history. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Um, yeah. So we might as well get <laughs> might as well get, uh, dive straight into it then. As with everyone, you're here to tell us about your your career, your academic career, your journey through Japanese studies. Um, so we might as well start at the beginning. Mm -hmm. uh, were you always interested in Japanese studies? Um, did you go into your BA uh, knowing you wanted to study Japan? Was your was your BA in Japanese studies? Um, uh, yeah. yeah, what's the story? It's a, um, I mean, I, I'm of the generation of Australians who came into schooling at a time when there was a real push towards uh, Asian education. So that was not just Asian languages, but learning about Asia across the curriculum. Um, and so, in fact, I, I grew up in suburban Brisbane um, in a kind of fairly conservative family. Um, I didn't really connect in lots of ways with, with my family. Uh, and so I always thought, uh, you know, learning a language would be a way to to get out, uh, you know, an avenue for, you know, developing a life that was beyond what what um, that background was. And so I always wanted to learn a foreign language. And in primary school, I, you know, self-taught myself some little like French vocabulary, even though I've never bothered to learn it properly. I was always interested in other places. Um, and then when I was entering high school, so in Australia, that, at that point, anyway, it's all changed a little bit. Um, it's when you're around 12, 13, you kind of go into to high school. I, and my school was in the middle of the transition towards adding Asian language education. So if I was a year older, I would have learned German. Uh, but the year I started high school, they happened to teach Japanese. So and because and it was a small school, it was the only foreign language available. Um, so it, it's, it's a pure, total, pure accident of history that um, that I ended up studying Japanese for five years in school. Um, and then I guess from there, things evolved again in, in, in a series of accidental kind of ways. Uh, I was relatively young. Um, then my cohort, I'm born in December, 
and the Australian school year runs January to December. So uh, I, I only turned 17 just as I was finishing high school. So I would, I would have spent my whole first year, year at university underage, which didn't sound that exciting. <laughs> so I, I um, convinced my parents that it would be a good idea if I did a year abroad, um, a kind of high school year abroad as a gap year. So I went and spent a year um, in high school in the outer suburbs of Kyoto um, and then went back and started actually a biomedical science degree because I thought I was going to go and become a medical doctor. Um, and then after a year of that, was like, that's not really for me. What else do I know anything about? And so I kind of went back to Japanese fr from there. And so I ended up with a, a yeah, graduating with a bachelor's degree in, in Asian and international studies, which is what it was called, with a specialization in, in Japanese language. You've described that, that one year, that kind of like gap year, which like around 17 is quite formative uh, time in, in the year of a person. So what, what was your encounter with Japanese culture and like the people um, there at the time? Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. I, I kind of was in a strange situation because I didn't need to do anything academically or really engage with schooling that much because I already had a place at university and graduated high school. And, and so in that sense, it was really just a year to, 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 to figure out kind of what it's like to live on your own or live in other places. I, stay, I stayed with host families, so in Japanese people's homes. Uh, in fact, one of my host families was a Japanese Taiwanese family, which was really interesting kind of perspective on the multicultural experience in, in Japan. Um, I uh, found the first few months really difficult. I don't know, um, kind of being just jumped in, in, in a regular classroom with no real structure. I was the only non-Japanese person in the school. Um, they'd never had an exchange student before. Um, wow. There were a couple of JET teachers, so, you know, Japanese and English teach teachers um, who were from America, and they were kind of nice, but, you know, they were 10 years older than me or something. Right? Wait, they, probably, they probably weren't, actually. I mean, I was 17. They were probably only 22 or 23. But when I was there, I thought they were, they were much older. Um, so they were nice to me, but they weren't friends, you know. Um, and so I think the first few months was quite challenging, but I joined the basketball club. Uh, made some friends that way um, and then ended up forming a little group of friends who who were, who were quite lovely um, and that got me through the year uh, and then later so when I ended up switching degrees I also did another year abroad at um, a university in Osaka as well a couple of years later so my formative kind of years in Japan I guess at, at 17 and again at 21 uh, were all in the Kansai so I'm a bit of a Kansai gene at heart, at heart really. <laughs> yeah I mean that, that, that's fascinating because like a lot of um, people uh, kind of like have their jump into J Japan through like Tokyo and the Kanto area and that like uh, there is like I, I think especially like when when you are kind of situated in like in an everyday situation I think Kanto is is, is a bit different um, absolutely uh, yeah so it's it kind really of um, you know I, I just think you know Kanto didn't have that that beautiful contrary contrariness that's kind of um uh, uh, you know, something that's val validated or valorized, I guess, to some extent in, in the Kansai, that it's perhaps not not in Tokyo. You know, Osaka's a bit bit brasher, a bit louder, isn't it? So yeah. <laughs> this has been in my experiences. Um, yeah, I mean, the other really interesting thing I think that might be unusual for the UK, UK people is that at that point when I started university, they had at, at Griffith about, I can't remember, six or seven entry points into Japanese. So my first year... In fact, all of my university studies was done all with people who had been in the same situation that I was in. So we'd all had a year abroad. Uh, there were 20 of us who had a year as you know, high school exchange um, and were learning Japanese from that point. So in that sense, we all had quite good conversational Japanese, um, although some amazing accents. I remember one, 
one um, woman in that class had spent her year in rural Aomori and just spoke with the most, I mean, I'd just never heard anything like it before, to be to be honest. But that was really cool because we ended up kind of all being in a similar situation where we we could we could speak Japanese conversationally, but maybe didn't have the the grammar or um, or the the written reading skills that 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 someone who might have had a more standard kind of textbook based learning experience would have had. And did that because you had like kind of like a um, yeah almost an advantage like if for example if I think back to to my undergrad that one of the main things in the first two years were just language and we had a little bit of uh, history and and like societal um, uh, classes and like religion as well but it was mainly really focused on on the language skills so did that impact kind of like the way um, like Japanese studies was was taught in your degree as well did that mean that yeah well language wasn't that prominent within your program and it was more about the yeah the humanities aspect of the study as well or well so the Australian system is a little bit different here in that what we were technically doing was a bachelor of arts um, and then okay. you essentially choose majors so it's something more akin to the American system mm -hmm. I guess whereby you know so I ended up actually with a double language major in Japanese language so I ended up doing enough Japanese language classes that that was the equivalent of two majors but initially I was doing Japanese and Korean so that was going to be the goal and I did a year and a bit of Korean language and then felt it was it was, it was too much to, to keep doing both which I regret to this day to be honest um, but then with around that you're also doing all of the things that you would have here in a nation studies degree but it's not uh, not as structured so there's quite a lot more choice um in, in at least at that point anyway in terms of how you you developed your, your degree and what particular subjects you you chose um particularly outside of the major so if you weren't doing a particular um you know stream you know there's something you had to do to, to meet the major requirements for your japanese language degree for example beyond that it was fairly flexible so i ended up doing um yeah modules on kind of japanese politics i did one on chinese history i did I uh, ended up doing some in the gender studies department as well because I was really interested in in kind of gender and sexuality studies, um, which was not about East Asia at all. So yeah, there was a bit more, a bit more capacity to to think to take things that were a, a bit beyond the core elements of a of an Asian studies degree, perhaps. Kind of also um, strengthening like the methodologies within the studies to like have more access to I don't know, um, I think or we've in, in previous episodes we were talking about how that is kind of. Uh, often seen as uh, yeah some kind of like a, a disadvantage if, if you go into a Japanese studies that you f do you lack the methodological uh, skill set uh, later on in your studies um, but that's in, in, in that way if you are more flexible and in, in choosing like topics next to your language classes that is definitely helpful and did that also kind of influence of, of what you then later went on doing or yeah I mean it's an Interesting one. I, I I always struggled with the dis with disciplines, like identifying with a discipline. Partly, I think because of that um, really diverse undergraduate experience, and I, I mean, I was as interested in gender studies as I was with the history modules and the you know, contemporary society one. So it wasn't. And in fact, I did um, originally before I switched into the the Japanese major. It was going to be linguistics. So I did quite a few sociolinguistics modules in my first year. So I've, I've done all sorts of things. I think I started four different technical degrees before, I, like titles, before I finished one. So I, I've done a bit of everything. 
Um, eclectic. Eclectic, that's right, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's the generous way to, to, to describe it. Maybe um, unmotivated or unfocused might be a, a more negative way to describe it. Um, but no, they really, for me then it was about, it was when I was thinking about going back to do a PhD uh, that I started to really think about which disciplines I, um, you know, resonated most strongly with me. So in addition to, I mean, we, we can talk about what I was doing after my undergrad if you like, but I think what I was doing alongside work was I was quite active in the in the LGBT community in Melbourne, where I where I was living, um, and had been a volunteer for many years with the Australian what was then called the Australian Lesbian and Gay Archives, and now is called the Australian Queer Archives. So we're working with historical materials, kind of preservation, conservation stuff, public engagement around that, um, and so that kind of I guess was always a real interest for me is working with with the past um and also i guess the way in which the past uh resonates with people's lives now um so it's that that kind of memory aspect as well as the and heritage aspects as well as the actual history themselves itself kind of applied history in a way yeah that's right yeah yeah, yeah. And, and then i guess when i was thinking about a phd program um i started to look around and and to be honest in, in the australian context I, the people who i was most interested in and who I, who I thought were doing the most interesting work on japan at that time were all historians so I ended up talking to Tessa Mora Suzuki and Elise Tipton, who was at Sydney then, and then ultimately, and Vera Mackey, who I ended up doing my PhD with, who was at Melbourne. Wow. Um, so that, that, I mean, obviously well, well recognized names, but they were the real people who were, who were doing really, for me, interesting work in, in relation to Japan in Australia. So it kind of made sense to orient myself towards history as a discipline. So it's, uh, you know, you've obviously got a very, um, wide range of interests that are a very eclectic set of interests that were already sort of forming in your undergraduate days. Um, and hopefully we'll talk about sort of that, that period in between your, your BA and your PhD when you did go and do some work in, you know, other fields and professional fields. Um, but what was your thought process like back as an undergraduate once you'd sort of gone through biomedical sciences and linguistics and finally settled on um, Japanese and, and Korean and then Japanese? Uh, did you sort of have in your mind an idea of what your next step was going to be at that point? Or were you still thinking, oh, it could be in any one of these various kind of... Not, not really, I yeah. Had. I mean, I, I'm i not a very good planner, I think. I tend to just kind of go with the go with the flow of things. Um, but I mean, I guess the other thing that was really important for me during my undergrad was being quite active in the student movement in Australia. So that was part... So as I mentioned earlier, I've got a very conservative family. So university was part of, for, for me, kind of a figuring out my sexuality, kind of coming out. And that was both really personal process, I think of negotiating that um, with family and, and friends and so on, but but also became a real political question. Like what, what, are the, what does the sexuality mean politically? And so that led me to be quite active in, um, in the student movement locally at Griffith, where I was on the student council. Uh, and then ultimately I was um, elected uh, at the first national queer officer for the National Union of Students. So nationally in Australia, we'd done all this work to develop a, um, a queer department um, to focus on LGBT, which has now been renamed. Um, but that was, so that kind of side of things also became really important as I was alongside my studies. So in a sense, I didn't really, I mean, studies were important. I liked Japan and I really, you know, enjoyed what I did, but then that kind of other activities that you do while you're a student was, was equally important. Uh, and so in fact, when I graduated, I initially worked in student unions as a, as a staff member. So I worked as a researcher and policy type role and then ended up kind of moving on to other things from, from, from there. So it was never really clear to me what 
whether Japan would be part of my professional future or not. And it was only a couple of years down the track when I was like, you know, at some point you've got to make a decision about what you're going to do. Uh, and I figured, you know, at that point, I guess in my late twenties that Japan was what I knew most about and had spent formative years of my life in and, and studying. So it kind of made sense to, to focus my energies there. Although, I mean, as, as, as you know, I mean, I don't think the politics side ever really uh, is going to go away and I'm still active in, in trade union politics and stuff as well. I think that is that is really um, such a like an, an interest and also in contrasting to like other people who've been on this podcast um, that kind of like uh, how university a career within university or university life even as a student you approached it like differently to to others you there is like a, a very strong political element to it and also like kind of a yeah um, uh, I remember having these conversations with my supervisor about like um, what it means to be uh, or like when you are researching activists and like activist movements, what kind of the role of the scholar is within and, and that, that seems like something that is, is has al always been embedded in your career or in your university life like kind of yeah. you, you were living that the personal is political in a way and um as, as, as I imagine, or as, as, as your CV now suggests, that's still something that is very um, prominent in your life and career today. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess for me, universities have always been political spaces and politicized spaces. So, I mean, on some level, the only people who can see themselves as that completely detached scholar are the most privileged, right? And so mm -hmm. for most of us who are in universities, we come with, you know, backgrounds that are marginalized in some way where you know um or we encounter you know discrimination or, or or whatever and so in a sense like to to kind of i mean for me i think that that idea of the detached scholar is an artifice and it actually just masks a lot of privilege that 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 i think um would be we're better off actually confronting <laughs> and in some level particularly in the moment i think given what's happening in um in this country in the, in the universities and in humanities in particular we really are at a crisis point and if we don't think of it you know, individually coming up with smart ideas isn't going to be the solution for that. You know, we have to do things together. Otherwise, we're in a lot of trouble. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, if you look at kind of like the precarious situation of, of departments like Japanese studies or East Asian studies, not only across the UK, but also across Europe at the moment, uh, it is quite scary uh, mm. for those of us who kind of... Uh, chose the path going into academia is like the, the, it feels a little bit like the yeah uh the the floor is being ripped um underneath your your feet um and yeah Maybe. it is it is quite um yeah scary uh the developments that have been going on mm. um for sure so i i, I think uh you we are really at, we, we come to a situation in in time where you can't really yeah separate the the two parts from one another just being uh, as you said kind of like in the privileged ivory tower as it's often described and then yeah yeah absolutely. absolutely and apologies to your listeners if you heard that's my dog janet in the background making herself heard <laughs> i've got strong thoughts on the personal and the pol political as well absolutely yeah <laughs> <laughs> but i i do think this is a really interesting topic that maybe we could just um stay on just a little bit longer because sure. i do think you clearly uh you know looking at your your social media profile you're very happy to uh, talk about your your political activities and your political thoughts and your political ideas um, through Twitter and well, but primarily through Twitter, um, uh, I guess. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but I, I think it's a it's a really interesting topic because I think 
a lot of our listeners are younger scholars who are thinking about either getting just started on their their um, sort of academic career, or maybe thinking about going on to do a PhD and whose ultimate goal might be to, to work in academia. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know certainly I myself and probably most of us kind of at this stage in our academic journey, probably spend a lot of time thinking about what we should and shouldn't say on social media in terms of how it might impact our future careers. And as you've as you've mentioned in your own description of, of your um, career so far, that you know, universities are very political places. A lot of undergraduates and postgraduates are going to be very political people, politically engaged people with strong political opinions um, who want to sort of talk about them and discuss them. Mm. Um, and I was just wondering whether you had sort of any any further thoughts on kind of this this dilemma that I think a lot of people might might face in terms of how they um, can kind of engage with these politic uh, like political ideas publicly and through their social media profile because it's obviously becoming a much bigger part sure. of their lives. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a it's ultimately it's a personal call, and I think that you know people are going to have different I guess tolerances for what they're they're willing to have their name attached to publicly, but I guess for me because I'd done other things before, I felt like if I don't have a career in academia, I'd prefer I'd prefer to be honest and open about the kind of place I want to work in and the kinds of uh, things that I believe in. And if that doesn't work out, then I'll, then I'll do something else. But certainly, I mean, I got a lot of that that kind of advice as well. In my final year at Melbourne during my PhD, a new head of department arrived, and his first order of business was to kick out all the PhD students from their workspaces and cut off all their research funding. And so, um, you know, me and some other people got involved and a bit of a protest. We picketed his inaugural lecture and wrote letters to the editor and he sent very threatening, personally threatening uh, emails to me telling me he would destroy my career. And ultimately, I just think, good luck, try, bring it on. You know, I mean, in a sense, like, who, what, what are you going to do? I mean, if in, in a sense, like, I don't know, it's, it's Maybe I'm being too flippant because on some level, like, you know, academia is built on networks and on, you know, a lot of the stuff that people hear about it is done through back channeling and whispers and rumor and so on. So, you know, I don't think anyone can claim that maybe people do, but I certainly don't believe that academia is merit- meritorious, meritocratous. I don't even know how to say that word, um, but, you know, it's not, a, it's not a meritocracy, right? Like some really, really good people leave um, and some really, really average people get jobs and have successful careers in terms of like, from my opinion, the quality of the work. Right. Um, so in that sense, you know, it, it's a bit of a crapshoot um, who gets the jobs and it's kind of the luck, luck on the day. And, and as I said, for me, I mean, and that's kind of my attitude now. I mean, obviously I'm in a much more secure position than I was at, as a PhD student, but you know, as we, as we know, if we look around the UK at the moment in Leicester or Liverpool, there are branches on union branches on strike over permanent, you know, academics with 20 year careers being fired for their political thoughts. That's not the kind of institution I want to be a part of, right? And and unless we kind of put a stop to that, it's going to make everybody at risk and make the university a much, much less interesting and important kind of social institution than it, than it is. So that's kind of where I, where I fall on it. But I totally understand that people have to make different, different judgments calls. And I also recognise there's a degree of privilege in being able to make those make those positions that others might not necessarily have as well when when it comes to like for like having a social media profile or or, i mean if you look at um specifically uh, in the us like almost every um phd student or or young professional academic they all have websites and 
um, everything is is very much more. You you can find people's work much easier than, for example, finding someone who does pr- probably the similar stuff in the UK. It's quite difficult to if you have never met or run mm. into them at conferences. It's quite difficult to get to know kind of your peers. Um, luckily, like organizations like Badges or are these kind of like promotes uh, the networking between um, like especially postgraduate students as well. But do you think that there is like that this kind of like engagement with postgraduate researchers in, in particular in the UK has to change in order to stay competitive in like a global trend as well? Because yeah, we know with Brexit, what that does to kind of like the the, the research kind of yeah funding and these kind of things at UK institutions also how mm. people may be not being a little bit more reluctant to um, come from Europe and and, and start uh, working in the UK environment and then look other otherwise do you think that there that is something that we kind of need to catch up on in order to stay relevant yeah. in a way yeah look I mean I think there is there are real risks at the moment for Japanese studies in the UK, partly because I think a lot of the basis of its strength, at least in recent decades, has been because of its proximity to Europe and its ability to attract, you know, PhD students and scholars. I mean, yourself probably included there, Anna, right, in terms of people who've come from Europe, to, particularly to study uh, East Asia in the UK because of its, its, its historic strengths here. Um, and certainly that is going to be really much, much more difficult um, after Brexit because the funding just isn't isn't there. So, yeah, I mean, I definitely think that is a real a real concern. Um, I don't I mean, I think social media also comes with real, real risks. I mean, if, I don't know if you've been following um, all of the stuff recently about the Ramsire case and, yes. um, you know, the kind of flack that the, the net or you have been kind of raining down on um, on people like uh, Sayaka Chatani and others like that um, who've been involved in that that work. So I do think it's incredibly toxic, toxic space and people should be careful about how they engage with that. But again, the flip side of that is that I've made a lot of connections with people that I wouldn't have done otherwise, um, both in politics and in, and in academia. Um, and, you know, you do really, as you say, become a lot more able to be integrated into uh, international networks that you wouldn't necessarily have been familiar with. And to, to, what, to some extent, that that's one surprising and, and, and largely positive outcome of the pandemic is the amount yeah. of accessibility there has been to, to to engage with different kinds of research uh, that people are doing that you wouldn't have known about otherwise although I do want to get back into the room with people because I just feel like you know zoom calls all the time is not yeah. is not quite the same is it so so yeah. yeah I don't know I mean I don't think there's a magic solution to that in terms of and I don't think Britain is necessarily I mean I think individually lots of PhD students are doing that right I mean you, you both got social media presences I know that many of our students do as well but it's it, I mean, there are probably some institutional thinking that needs to be done by groups like Badgers and by some of the leading kind of East Asian Studies PhD programs to think about how we can provide better training for for, for emerging researchers as well into how, how to navigate that. I don't know if you saw Paula um, Paula Curtis uh, from uh, who was yeah who's just going to UCLA has put out some some helpful guidelines I think on navigating social media as a an emerging researcher. So she, she's I mean she's doing some great great work on. Yeah, humanities and building yeah. kind of you know networks and so on. I think especially like um, having seen how the last year with the pandemic was going and how important like networking still is, but how accessible it has become, um, that is definitely a, a positive outcome of of the last year or so. But 
um, I'm a little bit like as much as I want to get back into meeting people and like also continuing debates uh, later on over dinner or over lunch, which is always like, yeah, especially for a for a PhD student, like the more, yeah, the less anxiety ridden a situation rather than like standing up during a talk and like posing the question uh, nervously. But um, yeah, I'm a, I'm a little bit um, worried what that will do to accessibility and especially, mm. um, yeah, given that, uh, yeah, the before the pandemic, that wasn't really given like, it would have been almost impossible to ever like attend any of, even within Britain, any research symposiums or like talk series, um, if you couldn't be there physically. I hope that there will be kind of like a negotiated hybrid model to that. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I, I don't think it has to be an either or kind of choice. Um, but I do think, I mean, I think you're absolutely right that by far the most productive conversations I've had at academic conferences have not been informal panels, right? <laughs> they've they've been grabbing someone over a coffee or or someone introducing you to someone at, at a at, at a public event or something, right? Or even just the conversations while you're waiting for somebody a, a session to start. And so that and that stuff's been harder to replicate. So I've seen some really great talks, um, but then it's like, well, what do you do with that, right? Afterwards, yeah. and then you have to someone has to find someone's email address and write them an email or you know that that becomes an extra step and do you do that if you just want to say I like to talk you know which yeah. might then lead somewhere that you can't predict um yeah. in a conversation but but maybe wouldn't in an email dialogue so yeah I think it, it is a it is a challenge and we're gonna have to think about how we do that but I, I I do worry that certainly you know university management managers are often looking to cost to cut costs and to 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 think about the cheapest and um uh, way to do things and certainly things like flights and hotels and conference registrations are expensive yeah but they are important in terms of building those relationships the same probably also for like vivas um yeah where um that might be a a, a corner they can cut yeah not. but that that also i mean when when i can somebody is invited to be an external examiner uh, at a, a phd viva usually they give a talk and there's opportunities for other um people to meet that person as well so it would be a shame to see that go that aspect yeah. of things yeah i mean i guess the flip side of that though is that certainly for some of our students this year they've been able we've been able to get examiners who are not in the uk or europe whereas that just would not have been a possibility yeah um you know in the before times if you like so but again i think you know hopefully there's flexibility um in, in that or we can kind of push for that in in, in terms of what gets built afterwards yeah, yeah. But it's a process of trying to take the good and yeah. uh, getting rid of the bad, or, or stopping the, the worst bits of the bad. You know, at least which is often, <laughs> yeah. often what you have to do. <laughs> um, okay, so sort of getting back to to your own your own story, oh. your own career. Um, so you mentioned that you you worked in uh, in a university setting straight out of your your undergraduates um, working in, in student unions. What else did you do in that period between your uh, undergraduate and your PhD? And what was it that sort of sparked that concrete decision to get back uh, into academia and, and, and pursue your PhD? Um, you yep. sort of mentioned that you, you kind of had the idea that you might want to get back into it anyway. But yeah, what, what sort of were the, the concrete experiences that led you? So I, um, I mean, I've done all sorts of jobs in my time. I'm not from a very... Um, comfortable family so I've worked since I was 15 so I've done everything from um, cleaning toilets to working in a wildlife sanctuary to you know all sorts of things doing 
hit set up and take down for for wedding DJs, you know, in the middle of the night, picking up <laughs> DJ booths from from wedding receptions and all sorts of things. Um, but in that period after I graduated my undergrad, so I did initially a, a short term research position, two two different research positions, one in the student union uh, at a university called QUT in Brisbane, where I was living, um, and the other for a researcher who was doing work on um, uh, practice-based PhDs so it was a kind of policy-based um, kind of research gig um, and then I decided I wanted to go back to Japan so I went to Japan for two years um, had a fairly boring English teaching job which um, I actually kind of lucked out on so it was a company that did both school-based English teaching and also corporate stuff uh, and their main client was uh, ANA the airline um, and so I ended up being one of their dedicated team working on the ANA contract so I basically taught a lot of chicken or fish um, in flight <laughs> English. Um, and they also did, uh, so the ANA has a requirement that all staff do um, an annual English test. So my company also managed that. So for a couple of months every year, we'd be on the phones uh, while flight attendants from all over the world would call in and we'd have a conversation and have to kind of assess their English, English level. Uh, and then I did some translation work. And so I, I picked up translation work on the side. Um, but was mostly just having a good time living in Tokyo, to be honest, for a couple of years. Uh, and then that that kind of came to a, a natural end. And I went back to Australia and got a job in a student union for a, a couple of years as a policy uh, researcher. So essentially supporting the student reps to uh, kind of um, represent their, their members and also kind of challenge university decisions where they needed to do so. Uh, and then I left there partly because of the there was a whole bunch of changes going on around how student unions were being funded which seemed like it was going to lead which it did to significantly reduced resources for student um uh, student organizing in australia which was uh, sad and ended up working then at an organization called asia link which um uh, has been around for, for 30 or 40 years um developing asia australia relations in a whole range of different areas so they did uh, they had one wing of their them was doing the Asia Education Foundation, which is about kind of Asian Asianizing the Australian the Australian curriculum. Um, but I worked in their public programming team, so developing public events. We hosted international conferences. We did a whole bunch of uh, second track diplomacy type initiatives, where we would get people together in kind of closed rooms to talk shop, and and then all sorts of things from there. So I did the, again did that for a couple of years. But it, I mean, I don't know if you've either of you ever worked in kind of non-governmental organizations but they're they're weird beasts I mean they <laughs> tend to be quite driven by small groups of people uh personalities uh, can be quite challenging to work with particularly if people see things as their babies and it kind of was like well I didn't really I couldn't really see a way to make that into something more than what it was which was was fine on, to some extent um and so then I started kind of contacting people about about considering a PhD um, and so that organization is actually based at the University of Melbourne campus, uh, Asia okay. Link. So it's hosted on the campus there. So I kind of was already on the university site and yeah. And then I kind of made contact, as I said, with, with Tessa Morris-Suzuki, Elise Tipton and, and Vera. And then Vera is the one who ended up coming through with some money, which is usually the way <laughs> these things work, isn't it? If there's funding, then you can, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's how decisions are made for you. So, <laughs> But I, I actually started uh, uh, self-funding and um, part-time initially. It's a bit different in the Australian system because PhDs are free for, for Australian citizens. So they weren't fees. Um, but then eventually a few months in, kind of Vera, Vera found some money down the back of the sofa. 
<laughs> it's just in one of the grants. But. <laughs> um, so did, did you know what you wanted to do for your PhD, uh, sort of right off the bat or sort of a vague, vague topic Being, area or? It had been developing for some time. So, I mean, I um, my PhD was around the subway gassings in Tokyo in 95, but looking at kind of the way in which victims worked with frameworks of memory from across the post-war. Um, and so uh, I worked with, yeah, primarily published materials. So there's a whole range of autobiographical texts and um, uh, collections of, of victim stories, media coverage, blogs, all sorts of things that that, that people were, were circulating. So that was what the PhD was about. And my interest in that really came from my very first visit to Japan, which, um, so I arrived in Tokyo before I moved to Kyoto for high school. The first week was a week of orientation in, in Tokyo with all the in, international students, exchange students. Uh, and the third day was the subway gassing. So wow. I was supposed to be on the, I was on the Maranuchi Sen um, uh, about an, uh, 20 or 30 minutes after uh, it, it happened. So my train kind of came to a stop and was kicked out into the streets, didn't really know what was happening and wandered around the streets of Tokyo until I found where I was supposed to go. And by which point wow. they thought I was probably dead. Um, <laughs> so yeah, but my host family from there, which I'm still in contact with, the father is a, a judge, uh, he's retired now, but he always, they used to always say that if he, he had have got his usual train instead of coming with me um, that morning, he might've been, might've been caught up in it. So I guess that was kind of that personal connection that, that really got me interested in how people think of themselves in relation to kind of major historical events. Um, and, and then, you know, for me, obviously it was very tangential to my life, but I, I knew that it had been quite significant um, for a lot of people, you know, five and a half thousand people or something caught up in it. And uh, yeah, 13 or so people had died as well. So you know, the, the, the effects of it were quite disparate across the whole city because of the scale of it, you know, and it really impacted a lot of people's understanding of their relationship to safety and, you know, their fellow people, fellow citizens in the city. And then I guess bigger, bigger questions from there. Yeah, that's definitely something that leaves a mark uh, on a person, like regardless whether they're interested in like acad academic work or, or not, that's definitely a very strong personal, yeah, experience. And um, to yeah. then kind of like work that into your material is, 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 is such a unique perspective on things when you were, <laughs> you were there. Uh, in, in in a certain way so that's really fascinating yeah um, I mean I guess and by the time I was coming back to it so this is like you know more than 10 years later 2007 or six or seven I guess is when I really started to get the, the proposal together and think about it you know we're a few years after 9-11 you know we're in that kind of moment of the the so-called war on terror and I kind of kept kind of coming back to this idea of well what what happened to the subway gassing it's not it's not framed in this way we're apparently in this moment of new forms of terrorism and and so on mm. and and that's kind of all, almost been forgotten about right at least globally so that was kind of the starting point for the research is how does this you know how, how do these kind of develop major developments in the world shape the way in which people talk about a particular particular historical event their relationship to it and just to kind of like reconstruct your way back into um, academia and do to do your phd you you kind of like have this 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 idea in the in the back of your mind like oh always kind of like lingering over you uh then kind of yeah the, the way you've done uh yeah your your personal uh career has developed you kind of like want to go back um 
how how did you approach kind of that transition back into academia? You, you mentioned that you contacted specific um, scholars, whether you could uh, have them as their supervisor, I, I suspect, mm-hmm. um, in that terms. Can you outline a little bit more kind of like your thinking behind, oh, how, how do I get back? Because I think for a lot of our listeners, um, certainly those who don't go the traditional way of like how the institutional pathway of doing uh, a postgraduate is kind of like um, suggested by by institutions, like especially having been out of the system for a while with still like geographical closeness to it <laughs> anyways. But h- how did you kind of approach that transition? Because I think for a lot of listeners, this, this might be quite a kind of a scary um, path of uncertainty and like not really knowing, oh, how, how do I, I have these ideas, I want to really... Um, Kind of follow this in, in a research uh, kind of way, but how how do we actually do that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really interesting question. Partly because I think my approach was very much I had the idea, and then I didn't really know how to do it, um, or or what in what framework I would do it. Um, and so I remember for most of my first year with Vera, she would we'd have these fights over whether or not I was a historian. <laughs> because I couldn't really kind of get my head around what that would even mean, right? Because in the sense I, I kind of had my project, I thought I knew what I was doing with it. Um, and why do I, why did I need a disciplinary kind of orientation? And it was a really interesting kind of process of really reflecting on what, what does that mean? And how, how do you do, how do you, how do you develop both as a kind of um, a specialist in a, in a language or culture, um, as well as, really orienting towards a disciplinary framework. Um, and and there, are, there are limitations in, in, in all of those, but to an extent, you know, it's, it is a choice, right? This is the kind of way you want to approach things. And so for me, I guess history became a, um, a, a means by which um, I could do the things that I wanted to do, but it gave me the kind of tools and the language to, to articulate that in a way that made sense to other people. And I think that's really all a discipline is. Um, uh, you know, so, so, so that was really the first year was like really reading a lot of disciplinary stuff, um, and trying to figure out what the, yeah, I guess how, how I could explain what I was trying to do in, in a framework that other people would connect to, would resonate with. But, you know, even in my PhD, I was reading lots of sociology and memory studies, um, you know, all sorts of Japanese studies, literature as well, religious studies, right. If we're talking about Orm, um, you know, all sorts of different things. Um, but yeah, so the way in was really very much about kind of having a good relationship with my supervisor and she very much guided that um, that process and, you know, was very happy to tell me when I was wrong or to keep asking the same question 10 or 20 times until I actually heard what she said. <laughs> we can <laughs> all Melbourne, relate to that. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right. <laughs> I mean, the other, the other good thing that happened at Melbourne, I think, at that time is there was a weekly um, seminar series for PhD students where we would meet every, I can't which night it was now, um, and that would was kind of guided um, approaches to key key themes in the historiography, I guess. Um, and, and so that that was quite helpful to to get a sense of what else was out there. And history is a funny discipline. I don't think either of you are historians necessarily by disciplinary. I, I'm st- I, I think I'm still <laughs> fig- trying to figure that out, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, in the history department, it was very odd because you end up getting all sorts of different people doing history PhDs, you know, the standard kind of come through an undergrad kind of into a postgrad model, but also retirees coming back in and have a project they'd love to do. 
So I remember there was one particular guy who ended up writing a really great PhD on the history of camping in Australia, oh. the tents, you know, like, uh, and I thought it was a bit of a strange project, but each week we would have, you know, a different theme for our discussions. And, you know, one week was material culture and he would be like, what's material culture got to do with camping? And somebody would be like, what are the tents made of? You know, <laughs> And the next week it was like gender and history. And he'd be like, what's gender got to do with camping? Um, and then somebody would be like, well, uh, who puts up the tents? Who's doing the cooking? Like, you know, um, and so it was kind of an interesting process of us doing really very, very different, different topics, but having that kind of fairly freewheeling conversation where, you know, people had all sorts of different experiences and really testing what, you know, what we, what, what we were actually wanting to do and, and the kinds of questions we were all asking. So just for, for our listeners who are not familiar with, with kind of like the, the Australian system, um, the, the, is the PhD similar to um, like a PhD here in the UK or is it more like in the US where you have kind of you have to have you have exams, you, you still have like courses that you need to take. Um, you have like a much more like where we in the UK tend to have like very independent research kind of approach to a PhD or is it is it more like the US model? No, it's it's it's, it's historically the British model. Um, but I think what's happened over the last decade or so is that um, there's been an increased focus on PhD training, which I think has happened here as well. So uh, in a lot of PhD programs in Australia now, there'll be something like what I just described, mm -hmm. a kind of semester or or a year of of regular activities that ensure that people know the state of their field and key debates and so on. Um, I'm not sure if that, that happens at Edinburgh, but we're doing similar things at Sheffield with our PhD program as well, just because of, I guess, you know, you, there is, a, I mean, I think there's some great advantage of the British system, you know, the, 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 the intense focus on, on research dives straight and get it done. Um, but the American system does have lots of advantages in giving people that breadth of knowledge, which um, I think isn't, isn't as easy to obtain in the British system because of the structure of the degree. Um, but hopefully we can include some element of that. Um, the, the other main difference, I think, with, between the British and the Australian system is we don't have vivas. So, oh, yeah. And that's to do with the fact that it's so far away. So historically, uh, you couldn't, there was no one else often in Australia who could examine a PhD. So your manuscript would get sent off, usually to Oxford or Cambridge historically, but <laughs> nowadays anywhere in the world. And then a few months later, you would get back a report and then there would be a, a kind of written dialogue. So it's a process that's done very much more like a, a manuscript submission or a, you know, an article or a book. Oh. That sounds... then, then you can have revisions and all sorts of things can come from there, but you don't get the same kind of opportunity to, to push back in a live setting. Hmm. Although, to be fair, missing the live setting does sound quite nice. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've heard some horror stories, though, in the Australian system. I knew one person who um, had a, a really tough examiner who just wouldn't respond to things for months and, um, you know, just asked for unreasonable changes and it ended up you know, getting kind of stuck for a really long time. Whereas at least in the, there are things that kind of move things along in the British system a little bit more. And so um, when you finished your PhD, did you then transition straight into uh, academic life? Did you go straight from, from your PhD to Sheffield? I did, yeah. So, I mean, I was um, incredibly lucky. I was, I guess, so during my PhD, I also spent 18 months in Japan um, at Tok Tokyo Gaidai. And I guess, coming off the back of that I'd, I'd kind of, and I'd spent some time in the States as well so I had a fellowship at NYU as well a kind of pre-doctoral fellowship for a few months which uh, which was really helpful because it, it now allowed me to connect up the kind of 9-11 stuff that, that was um, connected to, to 
the subway gassings into my research a bit. How did that come about just uh, before we move on? Oh, that, that, so that was, I think, so the, the Japan side was funded through um, Monbusho, essentially Monkasho. Um, and so that was a fairly standard route, I think, for people to go and spend some time at a Japanese university. And then off the back of that, there was this memory studies thing that just got advertised um, and I got and I applied for it and got it. I think I probably, in retrospect, I think they made a mistake and I wasn't actually eligible. But <laughs> by the time they realised that, I was already there because um, it was funded by CNRS, the French research body. And yeah. um, they had this kind of memory studies centre at NYU where a lot of their academics would go and spend some time. And I think they intention was that most it was for French citizens but it wasn't advertised that way and I applied and got it so I mean basically it was a free apartment on on West Third Street for a few months um and and my travel costs so there wasn't a stipend involved but I wasn't gonna complain about a free apartment in Manhattan (laughs) for probably the the vocabulary that you wrote on your hand during your primary school years might have come in handy (laughs) to get that yeah at that point I don't think I remembered any 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 French at all (laughs) but I mean that led to some really good connections too like I got I I, that turned into a publication one of the key people who I hosted me there um we did an edited volume which did edit a volume that I was that I was part of so yeah I mean it was it was a great great opportunity um and New York in the spring is, is never never a bad thing and so anyway, then I came back and I was I was in my final year looking at well trying to finish writing and, and looking for jobs. And to be honest, I didn't really ever think about the UK because I'd never spent any time here before and was looking mostly in kind of North America and Australia and to some extent Japan. And then the job just happened to come come up. I thought I'd throw in an application and didn't really think anything would come of it, but but it did. I was lucky. Mm-hmm. I kind of fibbed a little bit as well and told them I was closer to the end than I was. So then when I got the job offer, I had to knuckle down and and, and finish it off and get it submitted. Yeah. Well, I think kind of from what you were saying there and, and with your luck getting the uh, the uh, NYU thing as well, and um, from what we've had other speakers say in the in previous episodes, is uh, it seems like it's just a good idea to pretty much, uh, you know, don't, don't worry too much if you don't think you tick every single box. Yeah. on these applications get your application in there and um and see what happens because i think it's been a theme of sort of three or four of these these interviews that we've done people have said i you know this was my first job in in the industry and i never thought i'd get it but you know yeah. somebody sent it emailed it to me or i know certain lines oh, why not just send off my application just for a bit of practice and exactly i think that's exactly what happened and it turned out that in this case um the, they were kind of replacing two people, one who'd been a kind of gender specialist and one who'd been a modern historian. And that wasn't obvious because the way that British universities have to advertise, right, it's really generic language. It's quite difficult to actually get a sense of what people are actively looking for. And I think it just happened that I hit that that sweet point where I was kind of touching on a couple of different um, areas of, of, of strength that they were losing from the department. So lucked out. And I'm still here 10 years late, almost 10 years later. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and how has that experience at, at Sheffield been? Did um, Obviously, you're a senior lecturer now. I mean, you didn't come in as a senior lecturer. Did you just come in as, as, as a lecturer in... in um, uh, you're a senior lecturer in uh, Japanese studies. So did you come in as a lecturer in Japanese studies? Yeah, so we're in the School of East Asian Studies. So we do basically Japan, China and Korea. Um, but, you know, I'm not... I mean, the only reason I'm, a, I guess, a... I have Japanese studies in my title is that I don't speak or read Chinese or Korean, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do teach some material on the wider region. And obviously, if you're talking about modern Japanese history, you can't keep 
your studies to the borders of the islands of Japan, right? Um, so in my Modern Japan module, we talk a lot about um, you know, what is, where is Japan when we're talking about the last 150 years? You know, what, where do we look for Japan? Uh, what's the vantage points for doing that? And so we do yeah, stuff on, yeah, the empire, obviously, but, but also um, other kind of international frameworks as well for thinking about Japan. So yeah, I started as a lecturer and then, um, yeah, uh, I'd been there for a few years and um, felt like I was ready to go for promotion and did, um, got that uh, about 18 months ago now. Um, Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so I think it's, uh, it's an interesting one. I mean, the department has moved. So the there's been a lot of changes in the department in the time I've been there. You know, historically, Sheffield was a really strong sort of social science oriented department and we still have that strength there very, very, very concretely. Um, but, you know, I think the shift in, in what students are interested in exploring about Japan has been real. And a lot of students who are now um, coming into our undergraduate programs are more oriented towards arts and humanities. My personal interests are, are certainly more in that direction. And so, and we've also moved faculties as well um, in the last year. So we're now in the Faculty of Arts and Humanities where we, as we were um, in the Faculty of Social Sciences before that. Uh, and so I think what that has meant is that, you know, there has been a, 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 a slow gradual shift to greater prominence of the humanities, at least in the recent hires that we've, we've made. Uh, and even, and also the more humanistic parts of the social sciences. So we've got a real strength in, in ethnography and anthropology now, whereas I guess 20 years ago, it would have been much more political science and international relations where we still have those people, but it's maybe less, less dominant as a field within the, the work we do at Sheffield. I think in, a, in the previous episodes, uh, we, we had a, a couple of people who had strong connections to Sheffield. Of, of course, um, Dr. Coates, who is uh, part of the, the, the staff in in, uh, <laughs> in Sheffield. So it is, I think, especially in a UK context, um, like a stronghold for, for East Asia uh, anyways. So um, like a lot of publications, a lot of um, like leading um, voices of of, of certain um, disciplines within East Asian studies is kind of like connected to Sheffield. So um, it, it is definitely something that um, everybody has on their radar when they're in a UK, at a UK institution, definitely. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, make sure you let, tell, tell our bosses that every time they, <laughs> they try and kind of meddle with us. <laughs> definitely. Um, <laughs> uh, but you obviously, so you say this is your first time, um, sort of working within the the British university system but you've yeah. got experience now sort of within Japanese studies across the globe in, in Australia and in, uh, in the US and in Japan um and obviously you know we've we've got people thankfully listening to this podcast from from various different places um but obviously we're sort of primarily sort of focused on on the Japanese studies within the UK and that system and so now that you've been sort of working within the the UK system for for almost a decade now um you know what, what do you think are the particular advantages to, to pursuing a, a Japanese studies or an Asian studies degree um in the UK system and you know why should people listening to this podcast sort of prospective undergraduates or prospective postgraduates mm. want to pursue their degrees at, at a UK institution um obviously it's become it's becoming unfortunately a lot more difficult for people outside of the UK to do that within the yeah within Okay, but um, you know, obviously there are still some roots in. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, so I think the 
for undergrads, I mean, the, the British undergraduate degree is still an excellent degree, right? I mean, I think in, in Asian studies in particular, the kind of volume of con contact hours for language education, if you're doing specialist Japanese or, or Korean or Chinese studies at, at any of the major centres is is going to give you the, the foundations to, to have a career in whatever way you want to in using those languages. You know, people don't come out at the end of a four-year Japanese, Chinese or Korean studies degree without exceptional language and cultural skills, right? Um, and, the, and I think to some extent that is less so in other Anglophone um, places at least. Um, you know, there's been some real cuts in Australia in terms of the amount of language uh, 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 teaching time that people get on those kinds of degrees. Um, I think the situation in the United States is really varied depending where you go. Uh, and obviously in the US, you've got such variation in terms of fees and access and all that kind of stuff, which is a, again, a little different here. You've got a standardized kind of system at least at the undergraduate level. So I think there's some real strengths. And as you said, we've got like real pockets of, 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 of excellence, I think in terms of research and teaching. Um, I think the, the difference in the UK compared to Australia, at least historically, is that it's not everywhere, right? In most Australian universities, you will find people who are working on East Asia. Whereas in the UK, outside of Asian studies departments, there are not very many people around, you know? <laughs> you might find a couple people here and there. Uh, so that's a kind of the one difference that I think for me coming to the to um, the UK from Australia, the real surprise was how little many of my colleagues outside of my department knew about Asia at all, let alone East Asia. And, and so that that was a real ad adjustment, I think. And particularly in history, I can't think of very many appointments in Japanese history and history departments in the UK certainly if there are yeah, East Asian hires one person I think, one. In, in Edinburgh <laughs> yes that's right Edinburgh has one I think um, uh, there's uh, there's someone at Cardiff there's someone at UEA so there are a few people around um, St Andrews I think yes connected, in art history so. I think maybe yeah. but yeah so you do, you do find them they, they do exist but but I think um, at least historically in Australia you wouldn't have had you you know a history department would have had a few different Asia historians, not just one China person who maybe occasionally teaches on Japan, you know, which is a bit more common here. Um, so I think that kind of embeddedness of, of East Asian studies across disciplines is much, much less less here. So I think that is one one issue. Although in the in the specialist departments, obviously, there's lots of lots of great stuff happening. In terms of PhD, I mean, I think you know the one thing I would say. I mean, I was being a bit downbeat earlier about the prospects of PhD funding, but in actual fact, the, the flip side of that, of course, is that now that now 30% of PhD funding from UKRI can be spent on international students. So that does mean that um, the institutions, so people who are not European citizens will be able to apply for UKRI uh, funded PhD scholarships for the first time as of this year. So that that's gonna open up a different kind of set of possibilities for, for people to come and do PhD programs here, although I think that the, the unfortunate, it's probably not going to compensate for the the fact that European colleagues are not going to be counted as as home students for for funding reasons. Unfortunately, big problem. But I think for us, because I mean historically, almost all of our PhD cohort were were European. Yeah. yeah. So when when I was in the kind of like. Uh, after my master's and I, I took a year out just to like think about what I, I knew I wanted to do a PhD, pursue kind of like an academic career, but I didn't really know exactly how to approach the topic I wanted to research. And um, during that time, I was like looking kind of like everywhere. I, I wanted to stay in, in Edinburgh and 
good working relationship with my my supervisor. He's interested in the topic as well. So it kind of like then became a, a good fit for me. But um, when I was looking at uh, like other avenues to go down as well, um, Australia always came up as something, for example, where, yeah, well, you will have a funded program if you are accepted in a way, um, which is, I think, one of the biggest um, differences here that you, yeah. especially in like a subject uh, like Japanese studies, Chinese studies might be a little bit different, but Korean studies definitely. It is quite difficult to secure funding that is enough for you to pay the bills. I mean, Absolutely. you know, like mm. it is, it is quite tough. Um, so, like from the experience that you have of like uh, PhD students in in, in Sheffield, um, what what would be your advice when it comes to like um, not only the like the research aspects of a PhD, but also like yeah, you have to secure your livelihood. Like you, of course, yeah. it doesn't happen in a vacuum. So, no, what would you say, kind of as an advice to them um, when thinking about pursuing like a postgraduate um, yeah. degree? I mean, I think there are. The, the first thing to say, and I think this is true probably for later in your career as well, is that you're never going to be assessed by people who know actually what you're writing about um, or maybe have any connection to the place or language or culture that you're writing about. So you really, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a real, I think it's a real extra burden that um, places, places, disciplines or fields like East Asian studies have to do um, is that you have to convince them that what you're doing is worthwhile in a way that maybe somebody working on, I don't know, 1950s print media in Britain wouldn't have to do, right? Because the, 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 the funding panel will probably have people who understand why you might pursue that kind of a topic. And so I think that's, if you're thinking about you know, applying for competitive funding, how do you pitch your research as having significance to someone who knows nothing about what you're, um, what you're working on? And they can have their other expertise as well, obviously. So that's, I think that's the real challenge for, for us always when we're looking at funding applications whether that's at phd level or or further down the track and it's i mean i don't i don't think there's an easy solution to that unfortunately it just means that we as east asia studies scholars have to do twice the amount of reading because you've got to know the disciplinary debates and the kind of conversations that are happening in outside of your field in a way that the reverse isn't true um i constantly have these uh, every so often i get i have to review an, an article or something from someone who clearly doesn't doesn't know the Japanese study scholarship and is writing about Japan. And it's just a bit of a bugbear, isn't it? Cause it's like, come on, just go and do the work and come back, we have to do it. Um, <laughs> but but yeah, I think that's probably the, the key advice. I mean, the other thing I would say is that, I mean, if you are, if anyone who's looking at a PhD program, if you are able to get to the UK, there is quite a lot of funding here once you get here for things like field work for um, trips to Japan and, and so on. So that kind of side of things is more accessible maybe than it might be in other places because of the range of different funders that are funding that kind of level of stuff in the UK. And, and certainly at Sheffield, we often have, you know, GTA and te teaching kind of work as well. So it's not a, the problem I think is, is as, as you said, Anna, is the, the really that starting point of how do you get your fees paid for mm -hmm. and then have enough to live on off the side of that. And I think that's a real problem if we're going to think about how we develop sustainable PhD cultures post-Brexit, so we're going to have to have a look at things like PhD student fees. It's just really out of control, the amount that international students are expected to pay. Hmm. Um, and sort of moving away then um, from PhDs and kind of broadening it out more generally to, to Japanese studies and East Asian studies, looking forward, um, what do you think the future is, is looking like for Japanese studies and East Asian studies? Because 
uh, you know, we want to obviously part of the podcast is we want to encourage people to um, take on Japanese studies degrees, East Asian degrees and, and pursue masters and PhDs. Um, but we also have to be realistic. And I know, from yeah. you know, you, you're obviously very um, sort of engaged with sort of uh, the precarity um, that's kind of rife within academia at the moment, particularly post COVID. Um, I think you've been uh, posting, I, I think I was posting recently on, on Twitter about is it the archaeology department um, within Sheffield yeah. um, being, being threatened with closure? Obviously, that's not Japanese studies, but we can see this across a lot of institutions in the UK and probably around the world, um, departments being, being threatened with closure, despite the fact that they obviously offer really important um, uh, services and, and create really interesting research output and stuff. Um, so what do you think that the, the outlook is for Japanese studies and East Asian studies sort of in the, in the sort of short term and medium term, maybe long term future as well? Yeah, I mean, it's always hard to predict, isn't it? Because you never really know what's coming around the corner. But I mean, I do think we are at a really you know dangerous place for the humanities and social sciences more generally. Um, and I think that is to do with a particular you know, marketized logic that happens in higher education and the kind of expectation that that um, departments uh, will make profit, you know, on their own, you know, in, in on their own terms. Uh, and, and I think the flip side of that is the kind of rise of this certain kind of managerial class, you know, the, the failed academics who fail upwards and then hate on everyone below them. So it's, it must be a very, just very sad life, I think, for those people who end up in those roles, highly paid, but very alone. Um, anyway, that's a, that's an aside. <laughs> um, so I think I think I guess the future more concretely for Japanese studies. I think the challenge in the UK is that Japan is far away, right? Like it seems kind of distant, far, and so on. But you know, the amount of um, times that you get Japan on the on British television is, is just kind of amazing, isn't it? It is still this kind of real fascinating kind of place for people, for good and bad. And so, in that sense, I think there's always going to be some you know space for for, for Japanese studies scholarship, particularly you know in in the fact that you know young people keep wanting to study Japan, don't they? You know, we our undergraduate numbers across the UK are pretty stable. Like, there's you know lots and lots of people who are still very interested in in Japan and East Asia. So I don't think there's any immediate prospect of 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 that changing. Partly because I think the students who are doing who are interested in doing Japanese or Korean studies as an undergraduate haven't had that at high school or you know A level or GCSE almost always. So they're they're developing an independent interest that I don't see any immediate sign of that changing and then the challenges are, are then are then beyond that aren't they you know what will universities continue to see that as a um something to invest in uh, and and so on but yeah i mean i i guess for me it's like well i mean i, I, I japanese studies is important but i mean no more or less so than any other kind of <laughs> part of the world um and i do I, I think at some level we yeah i'm trying to think of how to, how to articulate this but I'm not sure what what Japanese studies will look like in the kind of medium term, but there, there will always, as long as there is a university, I guess there'll be people who, who do study and research about Japan, right? At least I hope yeah. so. Hopefully. In the UK. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't have any grand, grand future prediction capabilities, uh, unfortunately. If so, I might have had a different career. <laughs> And especially in like the context of like a post-COVID uh, like university, for example, um, I've seen that in Sheffield you've done kind of for those who have who were meant to be going um, abroad during their underground uh, underground <laughs> undergraduate years <laughs> um, to Japan that you kind of like substituted that with like a virtual experience of Japan, and I'm that that is really like something that I. 
that when I saw it, I, I got really curious about because I, I think it is such a, a a great idea of kind of like linking kind of that virtual space with the studies and like kind of like along the lines of like a digital humanities and like mm. it's certainly something that is not only in a COVID time or like a post COVID immediate post COVID time such a yeah useful tool of investigating um other research areas as well in Japanese studies because of this geographical distance between the UK yeah. and Japan yeah. and obviously that there is a, there is a financial aspect to it as well if like not everybody has the financial means to then go uh, to Japan even though there are some projects um and, and ways to get engaged but maybe you can tell us a little bit more about that because I just sure. found it such a a great way of turning a quite um yeah bad situation into something so innovative and and yeah fascinating exciting yeah uh, with um, life yeah thanks yeah so this this is kind of um a, a bit of a longer story in that it the field trip was designed so we our undergraduate students who are specializing in language have a full year abroad usually obviously at the moment that's all a bit Bit, bit different, um, more challenging. We also have an undergraduate degree in East Asian studies, which is not a language specialization degree. So there's students who are learning about East Asia, maybe picking up a little bit of, you know, Japanese or Chinese or Korean, but not to the level that, that the specialists are. Um, and so we'd felt for a while that those students um, were graduating without necessarily having had experience of being in East Asia, um, which we felt was a bit, un, a bit unfair. So I'd been working on this field trip for a few years. It was supposed to run last year for the first time, which of course it, it couldn't. Uh, Easter, Easter is when it's usually meant to run. Um, and so last year we had to just scramble and, and kind of fill in the blanks as best we could. And then realizing, I guess, coming into this year that we would not be able to go again, we felt it was important to put a bit more time and energy and resources into it. So I worked with uh, Anna Vainio, who's a PhD, recent PhD graduate of that program. And we developed this field trip from home, which, um, had a lot of things we would have been doing in Japan, but then kind of done virtually or done at home. So each week there were also weekly tasks, which um, were assessed, but not the quality of them. It was about giving people something to do each week to bring to class. So the example I, I point to usually is the week we did on food, where we had um, the master chef winner, Tim Anderson, come in, um, who runs restaurants in London, and he gave him all the talk and actually he's a great speaker. He's, he did a master's in Japanese studies um, oh. and uh, knows it has a background in academia as well. Um, and then we sent them all a copy of the cookbook and a 20 pound budget for ingredients and everyone cooked and sent photos and talked about that. And that was really just a way to get them to think about um, different ways of learning and, and understanding, uh, I guess, stuff about Japan. Um, and some really interesting things came out of it. So we had students who were saying that they found the fact we were working with different kinds of materials, really helpful if uh, they had, you know, certain, sorry, my dog again, um, disabilities that meant that, you know, they were more able to learn through uh, through visual methods or through listening than they might have done through through just reading text. So, yeah, we did a week on sound and, and all sorts of things. So, I mean, it, it's, it's not the same as being in Japan, right, um, you know, but what it did do, I think, is give people a chance to get get some aspect of that. Um, and uh, we had a lot of fun uh, and the students were also allowed to, their assessment was whatever they wanted to produce. So one of my colleagues at Sheffield in um, biblical studies, Meredith Warren has done a lot of work on uh, what are called un-essays. So essentially creative uh, responses 
Um, so that was the main assessment along with a short um, written kind of exegesis, an explanation of the thinking behind it, which then connected back to scholarship. And students did all sorts of amazing stuff. We had someone create a, a neon sign, um, oh. which they used to kind of talk about visual, like night, uh, the night landscape of, of Tokyo. We had um, someone do a color analysis of photos and like essentially pixelating photos and then pulling out what, what colors gonna make up the city. We had um, some cool stuff on food. Yeah, it was really, really fun fashion, all sorts of things. Yeah. Oh, that sounds so, was, so fascinating. I, was, I, just when I was uh, reading about it, I was just like, oh, I wish I had that in my, <laughs> so, somewhere down the line in my undergrad or in my master's. It would have been, yeah, just a different way of kind of con experiencing like knowledge and, and the production yeah. of knowledge. I, that's really... I, mean, this, I mean, these universities have just historically, and for good reason, I think, have built knowledge on books. But, you know, there's been lots and lots of critique of that over many generations of scholarship. Um and we know that lots and lots of knowledge is held elsewhere outside the written word. So why shouldn't we think about ways that we can tap into that and encourage students to develop both the means to learn through those other mechanisms and, and also to communicate what they've learned. So hopefully, hopefully we achieve some of that anyway. Yeah. By the sounds of it, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, so we've, we've kept you here for over an hour now. Um, but is there anything anything you wanted to, to loop back to or anything else you wanted to discuss before we before we wrap things up? I don't think so. I mean, you know, as I said at the beginning, I'm not a, I'm not a very good planner. I've ended up just kind of flowing, <laughs> going with the flow with things and ended up where I am. But, you know, I mean, I think people who are listening are probably going to be listening because they're interested in Japan or they're, they're studying Japanese or they're, they're wanting to do that. Uh, and I don't regret ever doing that I think Japan is is something that accidentally became a, a pretty major part of my life and I'm pretty happy it did so you know yeah maybe that's a that's a good place to, to, to leave things on <laughs> I'm gonna say well we we normally um end these these interviews by asking you know if you went back to, to day one of your undergraduate degree of course if you went back to say one of your undergraduate degree you'd be just starting at your biomed Bio yeah <laughs> if you went back to say day one of uh, your decision to uh study Japanese um then uh you know what would you say to yourself what advice would you give to yourself um you know maybe you covered it a little bit there but yeah well I, th I mean I think you know Japan is like anywhere it is what you'd make of it right so in a sense like I couldn't have ever predicted then what the kinds of experiences I've had in and with Japan but you know I think so you know I think sometimes when we talk about Japan particularly I think people at the early stages of studying Japanese it becomes there's a kind of fantasy construction of Japan that becomes huge in people's mind, right? That actually Japan is a much, I don't know, smaller place than that. It's it's a place like anywhere that's built on people and human relations. And they're the things that are, are more important to me than, than, I don't know, anything else. So I guess I'd, if I was going to say to anyone who's starting it out, it would be, I mean, you're going to love that fantasy vision of Japan, but when you get, you get there, it's going to be so much more complicated and, and, grounded than that and and that's also kind of fun and and yeah. and, and and a great a great thing to experience so well thank you so much for a no very lovely and a lovely talk and a fascinating discussion i think we've, okay. we've hit on some really really interesting topics and no speak. problem yeah, yeah well, definitely. i'm always, always happy to to uh, answer any emails or anything so if any of your listeners want to get in touch if anything i've said resonates feel free to drop me an email and um Likewise, I'm sure hopefully we'll get to see you both at some point in person. 
Yeah, fingers yeah, crossed. Yeah, that would be lovely. Hopefully, I mean, yeah, I'll wait for that first. Yeah, it's back in person. Yeah, yeah. I mean, at, at the very beginning of our project, it was kind of like the, the idea was that like our guests will also be kind of giving a, a we we talk at the university, so we kind of have that social aspect to it as well. But um, I'm sure that there will be uh, an opportunity very soon where we can kind of yeah do that what we missed uh, over over the last year. Good. Yes, we're always always very happy to come and visit visit Scotland. We hope that you enjoy the interview with Dr. Pendleton and that it provides an interesting new perspective on how you might approach your own journey through Japanese studies. We would like to thank the British Association for Japanese Studies for their ongoing support and making this podcast possible. Thank you very much and goodbye.